You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Things that lead you to become curious or things that lead you to become bored bored are going to be very, very different. But what they share in common is this push to explore your world. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Andy Warhol once said, you need to let the little things that would otherwise bore you suddenly thrill you. He was, as in all things, being provocative, but he was also onto something. I've explored before the phenomenon known as the transformative power of attention, the rather wonderful and remarkable fact that even really boring things can become interesting if we pay enough attention to them. But back it up a step to boredom itself. What gets us there and what, if any, relationship does boredom have to curiosity? Outside Dorothy Parker's famous quip that curiosity is the cure for boredom and there is no cure for curiosity. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And today, I want to plumb boredom and explore its subtle and sometimes surprising intersections with curiosity. Some time ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jacqueline Gottlieb, a neuroscientist at Columbia University who studies curiosity and the science of paying attention. At the very end of our conversation, she fessed up to a new interest. Another benefit of learning or asking a question is that you avoid boredom, (laughs) right? So boredom, um, it seems to be boredom is an interesting subject in and of itself, and and it's an aversive state, right? Right. People complain about being bored. So, yeah, boredom, um, there is research of boredom that I'm not very familiar with. Actually, I'm just finding out about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just in the process of organizing a little event here at Columbia, and I've been speak, uh, speaking with several people who do research on boredom. Oh. Um, I, I will make sure to invite you when, when we have Please it organized. Please do. Please <laughs> do. And she did. So one lovely day last September, I took the bus to New York for a boredom symposium which was anything but boring. I took copious notes that day, but for none more busily than a researcher from Canada whose video of a guy knocking over trash bins out of boredom resonated in my secretly rebellious soul in ways I have to admit were a little unnerving. James Dankert is a professor and head of the Cognitive Neuroscience Research Area at the University of Waterloo. His lab focuses on two areas, boredom and mental model updating. And he's co-author with Johnny Eastwood of Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. I interviewed James for a segment for In These Times, a new community-sourced show here on WERA, reflecting on life in these extraordinary times with COVID-19. There, we explored our experience with boredom while we stay at home, and now I'm delighted to have him back to dig into curiosity. So welcome back, James. Great to be here again. Thank you. So I have to ask, what made you decide boredom was interesting? (laughs) There's a number of things that got me into boredom research. One is the, uh, comes to the Latin phrase of medicate cura te ipsum, which is really just the second of two Latin phrases that I've memorized to make myself look smart. (laughs) 
but what it means is physician heal thyself. And so, you know, I experience boredom a fair bit still in my adult years and I find it really uncomfortable and distressing and I, I, I don't enjoy it um, at all. And so I really want to try and understand it a lot more. And when you start to explore something like that, that I think many people have taken for granted, you know, boredom's just sort of a part of the furniture of life. And so you don't really attend to it much. But when you start to look into it, just like you say from the, the uh, Andy Warhol quote, you, you find it quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, and my other reasoning for getting into it was that I trained in Australia as a clinical neuropsychologist. And I, I saw a number of young men who'd had traumatic brain injuries. And this is from anything from you know concussions to bar fights to motor vehicle crashes and these kinds of things that lead to certain types of brain injury. Anyway, I, I asked each of the, the young men that I saw whether or not they felt they were more bored before their brain injury than after. And I did that because my own brother had had a, a motor vehicle crash and he had reported well before I did any of my training that he was really bored after his injury. And so I asked all these young men, about, about 15 to 20 young men that I saw as my, in my capacity as a, a clinical neuropsychologist. And to a number, they all said yes. And they didn't just say yes. They sort of leapt out of their chairs to say yes, as though this was a really important part of their experience post-brain injury and no one had bothered to ask them. Mm. And so for those sorts of reasons, I, I've been fascinated to, to understand boredom. I, I did my sort of finished my undergraduate in 1994. That that will age me. That will date me for a bit. But right from that point, I really wanted to explore and, and understand boredom. And it took closer to sort of 10 years or so before I could get my first paper out on the subject because you, I had to jump through some hoops to get to the state where I could run my own lab. Yeah. So many listeners here in the D.C. area may recognize you and your name from this really excellent piece you wrote for the Post in April, talking about boredom in the context of quarantine and work from home orders. And there and elsewhere, you've described boredom as a signal, a call to action. And I'm wondering about that in the context of these young men or with the guy with the trash cans, a sense of wanting to do something, a call to action, even if all it was was knocking over trash cans. That's really... That's what's going on for all of us with boredom, right? It's this call to action in some way. Absolutely. The, the young men with the traumatic brain injuries, they, they didn't have a lack of that call to action. They had it intensely um, and just didn't really have the outlet to respond to it positively. So the guy who is standing on the curb and waiting for something, we don't know what, and, and just decides while he's waiting he's going to tip over a trash can – I don't really know whether or not he's bored, but it certainly looks possible. Um, and, <laughs> yes. and it's just, you know, this is the action that's available to him right now. This is the yeah. thing that he can do right now that can sort of uh, alleviate the sort of inattention that is boredom. So one of the things about boredom is that it's, a, it's not a laziness and it's not apathy. It really is, a, as Leo Tolstoy puts it, it's a desire for desires. You want to be doing something. The conundrum of boredom is that even while you experience that signal, that, that want, that desire to do something, you don't want to do anything that's currently available. So, you know, you, you're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place of, of really feeling acutely that desire to do something, but also recognizing that or believing that none of the things currently in front of you are going to work. And so, you know, sometimes that leads some people to, to lash out with respect to the, the people who'd suffered traumatic brain injuries. Those guys 
you know, have a, as a classic outcome of their injury, they have problems with impulse control um, and problems with sort of, you know, uh, judgment and decision making. And so they might be, you know, even more likely to, to tip over the trash can or worse. Mm. Well, I went back to my notes from the from the symposium, and it was this call to action idea that caught my attention in your talk because curiosity is also a kind of call to action. And I had a, a note in my margins that I wondered about the intersection here at this sort of intriguing idea that boredom and curiosity could in fact have some similarities. Do you think they do? I, I, yeah, absolutely they do. And it, um, but, but with very different sort of antecedents, you know, things that lead you to become curious or things that lead you to become bored, bored are gonna be very, very different. But what they share in common is this push to explore your world. And I think there's another key thing that, that, that differentiates them that shows up why boredom is so problematic. So I might get there in a roundabout kind of way, but in our book, we talk about a guy called David Morgan. And David Morgan was in a calendar in 2015 in the United Kingdom. It was the Dull Men of Great Britain calendar. <laughs> and David was in there because he collects traffic cones. Now, if I just end the story there, then David sounds like one of the most boring guys in the world and you'd never want to meet him and, and because you sort of think, well, how can we ever have a conversation about traffic cones? But the true story is that David worked for a company that made traffic cones. They distributed them in, in Great Britain and then had a lawyer send them a letter saying, you have broken our patent on our traffic cone, cease and desist with your distribution of traffic cones. So David was charged with going out and investigating whether, in fact, their traffic cone had broken a patent or not. And in the process of doing that, he explored many, many different traffic cones and got fascinated by the details. He did what Andy Warhol suggested. He sort of, you know, found fascination in the smallest things that would normally bore us, right? So that call to action in a curiosity kind of sense comes from a very different place. It comes from the sense that we have a gap in our knowledge or that we have something that we, we don't know about that we need to fill that gap and, and find out about things. The problem with boredom as a call to action is that it's kind of objectless. It's calling you to act, but it doesn't have a, an object or a thing or an action tied to it. You know, David Morgan knew he had to go and investigate traffic cones because this was going to be important to his job. But let's say if David gets bored at some moment for, for whatever reason, what object is he going to turn his attention to in, in that moment of being bored? And that's therein lies the sort of problem of being bored. You just you don't have a thing that you feel like you can direct your attention to that will work to satisfy your, your desires to, to be engaged. Yeah, I was really struck in your book, which, by the way, is a delightful read. Thank you. I was describing it to someone earlier this morning, and I said it's very tightly researched, but it's a very engaging presentation full of interesting kind of anecdotes like that and some really interesting kinds of turns of phrase. And one of the, one of the things that you say about boredom and this you know, its inability or our inability to engage that sort of results in boredom is that the world is not enough. And and I was, again, another one of my kind of margin scribbles. I'm like, but for people who are curious, like the world is my oyster, right? There's always something in the world to to be interested in. So there's a there's this common place of a, a sense that 
that there's, you know, a signal to explore, um, a need that needs to be fulfilled. But but then there's this real divergence that happens in terms of how we engage. Both of them are kind of this signal about evidence of our struggle to engage with the world. But then it kind of it's a dead end for boredom, right? Curiosity leads somewhere. Is that what you're saying? I, yes, curiosity does lead somewhere. And, and that we talk about two different types of curiosity in, in research, one being the sort of knowledge gap so that you, you discover that there's something you don't know that you'd like to know and you need to fill, fill that gap. And another is sensation seeking. And by that, we don't mean thrill seeking in any sort of way, but seeking um, a new experience that you haven't had before. And so, yeah, curiosity is always sort of directed in that way. What I think you're talking about is the kind of I don't know if it's the right to use this sort of term, but a sort of baseline level of curiosity that, you, that a person might have in the world. And we certainly have you know, individual trait difference, differences in how curious we are about the world. What I might sort of uh, do in, in terms of uh, what we write about the world not being enough, I might sort of go back and have to re-edit the book now and say the world is not enough at this moment for the person who's born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you say that. You say that. <laughs> it's not as though, you know, a person who is bored can't be curious. In, in fact, there's not, in all of the research that we've done and, and that I'm aware of, there's not a really strong relation between boredom and curiosity. You might expect a negative relation. You know, the more bored you are, the less curious you are. It just doesn't, it doesn't come out in our research that that's the case. So people who get bored a lot are still capable of curiosity. Certainly I'd count myself amongst that. I find lots of things around my, my world um, curious and engaging and so I think there really is an in the moment problem for the boredom person boredom prone person that this for whatever reason right now nothing is going to work and that in some sense when I say something like for whatever reason that's highlighting a curiosity gap for me I don't know all the reasons why it doesn't you know the world is not right. enough for the boredom prone and that's why we keep doing the research in your defense and to backpedal a little bit on what i said you're actually very clear about that distinction that it is sort of in this moment and and you talk and this is certainly in the literature and curiosity as well as sort of the difference between sort of state and trait for experience of boredom and and boredom proneness so some people are more prone to boredom as i think People will think of themselves or other people will think of people being more prone to curiosity, which for me raises an interesting question because I sort of argue that, well, you can get better at curiosity by by exercising that muscle some. Can you get better at not being bored? <laughs> I actually just had this conversation with my wife the other day. We collected some data recently and we haven't, we haven't published it yet, but what we were looking at is people's experience of boredom during the social isolation of the, the past couple of months. And we find that people who are highly boredom prone tend to break the rules of social distancing more. So they're not coping well with the, the rules of social isolation. That, and, and so they break those rules. Not entirely surprising given what we know of, of boredom proneness. But then she asked the question you just asked, well, can, can we help people be less boredom prone? I'd love to have a really tight answer for that. And I just don't. You know, I think people have uh, glommed onto mindfulness and meditation and mindfulness training over the past 
I don't know, decade or so as a cure to just about everything. I think that for the boredom prone person who struggles to focus their attention, and we know that from lots of different research findings, asking them to do a, a meditation technique that requires very focused attention, I think is just um, pushing things uphill. But, you know, something counterintuitive might work. You know, perhaps we teach people how to better fidget or, or to do things that sort of help them release the pent-up energy that, that is evident when they're bored. I don't know about the, the notion that you can train curiosity. I mean, you, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. I'm loath to sort of suggest it, but it feels like, you know, you, you either are curious about your surroundings or you aren't. And I, and I guess it's, it's a spectrum, so it's not going to be that black and white. But... I've always been um, curious to try and find a way of assessing whether or not incoming graduate students who want to work in my lab are curious or not. Because I think in science, it's massively important that you just have a broad general curiosity about your world. And, you know, in my field about human behavior generally, I don't want a student who comes into my lab and only wants to focus on boredom. I want them to think more broadly than that. So I, I'd love to know, you know how I could sort of train people to be more curious because uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely convinced that it's possible. Well, so that's actually a really interesting point. And I'll, I'll connect you to uh, someone I had as a guest some time ago, Andrew Minigan from the Right Question Institute. And he's actually doing research with graduate students about helping them hone better questions so that they are more engaged, more assertive, more expansive in their thinking about whatever it is that they're studying. So he seems to think anyway that there is something that you can teach people, some skills maybe, that whether that's actually making you objectively more curious or simply better at curious behaviors, I don't know. <laughs> but I think about what you say what you say in your book about curiosity as an adaptive response to boredom, as opposed to boredom being sort of a maladaptive response to this stimulus. So it seems like there ought to be a way to help us figure out, and maybe this is this area of research, well, like, well, so how do you bridge that? It can't be, the answer can't be that it's all about a fixed mindset, right? There's got to be a something that we could figure out gets tweaked. You think or not? No, I agree. Um, one of the things that we, we look at a lot, certainly social psychologists do, is they look at these big five personality traits, right? So things like extroversion and introversion, conscientiousness and so on. And one that I think relates very closely to curiosity and boredom in opposing directions is openness to experience. So if you're a person who's very open to new experiences, you're probably also likely to be a highly curious individual those of us who are sort of you know, less open to new experiences are more likely to be boredom prone. And one of the things that I think about that in terms of cultivating a curious attitude to the world as opposed to succumbing to boredom, and I think that I choose that language carefully, is you need a calm mind. So if I think about the moments that I'm most curious or that I experience curiosity in a state, it's, it's usually when I am not focused on a particular goal right now because right? I don't I don't have specific things that I need to get done so if I'm watching birds or if I'm you know walking with my dog and, and, and noticing something around me and my surroundings 
I can be curious about those kinds of things because I'm in a calm state and my mind is open to experiences. Boredom is really not characterized by calmness at all. <laughs> it's a much more restless and agitating sort of state. And I think, so the thing I would do, I guess, if I was to try and suggest to people, how do you get, how do you avoid succumbing to boredom and cultivate curiosity is first you need to relax. First, you need to sort of calm your mind and not succumb to that agitated, restless feeling of boredom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you also make a case that boredom isn't all bad. And I really appreciate this, actually, in the book. You cite some studies in artificial intelligence that show that boredom's a better driver of exploratory behavior than curiosity, which I found fascinating. And you also say that life without boredom would be filled with apathy and stagnation. The notion of a life without boredom comes from our analogy with pain. And this is actually something that my friend and, and colleague, Andreas Alpadoru, who's a philosopher at the University of Louisville, first sort of introduced me to this analogy. So the function of pain is not to cause hurt. It's actually to call you into action. It's to, to say, you know, you should do something to address the cause of that pain and do it quickly because otherwise it's going to keep hurting, right? So boredom is not there to make us bored. It's there to call us into action and address the cause of the boredom, to make us, uh, you know, alert us to the fact that it's happening and make us think carefully about what might be a better way for us to engage right now. Now, if you continue the analogy on, what would a life without pain look like? Well, we actually know what that looks like because there's a, a disorder known as congenital analgesia where individuals don't feel any pain. And you might sort of think, well, that's great, except that these individuals are at severe risk of self-harm, just inadvertent self-harm. They're not doing it on purpose. They just don't feel the pain, and so they don't redress the cause of any pain, and they can really cause quite a lot of hurt to themselves. So a life without boredom would mean that you wouldn't have that call to action. You would that, that wouldn't be evident in your life. And so you would become a stagnated, apathetic ineffectual individual and none of us really want that right we want to be out in the world engaging with others engaging with different tasks and goals and pursuing those goals as effectively as we can and boredom helps us do that and as you say responding well to that boredom signal gives it its value right it's the way of respecting the signal that we've just received i think that's a really lovely way of thinking about it yeah, it's important that we we adaptively sort of listen to the signal. And again, that brings me back to the calm mind. You know, if we if we succumb to the the discomfort of boredom, it makes it a lot harder to do that positive response to it. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, before I let you go, you want to try to respond to the signal that comes from my big jar of wannabe analogies? <laughs> yeah, I'm up for it. All right, all right, good answer. All right, so I literally have this big jar. And in it are slips of paper. I'm going to take out one for you, one for me, and one for our audience. We're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on this slip of paper. So yours is uh, seesaw, and mine is uh, going slow. Oh, interesting. So do you want to go or do you want me to go? Going slow sounds like fun because uh, Carl Honore wrote a book called In Praise of Slow that's really important to us. And right now, I think that uh, you might want to uh, look up. But um, seesaws, 
my memory of, of seesaws as a kid is falling off the back of one and having my chin hit the, the end of the seat. Oh, no. um, so seesaws as are to curiosity. Um, uh, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. The up and down of energy that, that comes from being curious and, and having that wax and wane, I don't know. <laughs> I'm struggling I like it. a little. No, no, I, not at all. I think you that's I think that's actually a really good analogy for what curiosity does to us. That kind of up and down, that sort of play with it a little bit, but it also sort of can jerk you around. I don't know about you, but I was on lots of seesaws in my life that were not smooth rides. No. <laughs> so um going slow. Um so I think curiosity is like going slow because it does sort of take you down these, as you said, sort of takes you down these rabbit holes. It can slow you down um, on your path to other things. But it also, um, I think it has the potential of that feeling of um, of flow where uh, time sort of warps a little bit and um, and you sort of slow down and into – the moment, um, at least sometimes. So I don't know. That's how. It, that's what I come up with. So audience, yours is, how is curiosity like glory? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, good luck with that one, folks. See, I, um, I invite people to put things in here. I never know what's going to come out of my jar. So how, how is curiosity like glory? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, James, Thank you so much for this, and it's been very fun watching uh, your work get the kind of attention it's getting uh, recently. I expect there'll be more of that, and I'm hoping that this yields some really interesting research opportunities for you. Yeah, well, it, it certainly has uh, recently. We've uh, we've started to look at things in a in a slightly different light, and and uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you again today. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my previous shows, including the ones with Jacqueline Gottlieb, on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at Choose Number 2, Letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your glory analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, James Dankert. Links to his lab and new book, Out of My Skull, on my website. Thanks, too, to Jackie Gottlieb for infecting me with her interest in boredom. Our theme music is thanks to Sean Ballack. And this is Jat Pure by the Sweet Hots via Blue Dot Sessions. So, the next time you find yourself feeling bored, let the signal be of service. And see what curiosity can offer. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth. 
where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.